0: so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
1: Greetings. Hello. <laughs> Does that sound like I'm gonna start a broadcast from like, you know, like it's a sci-fi like I've, film? Or something? Uh, you know,
2: come into your cave and like you've got some <laughs> Yeah. Greetings, <What>? weary
1: traveler. <laughs> uh well you wish
2: to have passage to the cave network.
1: Maybe I'm talking about that because I've been playing a fantasy video game recently. Oh yeah, yeah, called uh, Disco Elysium. There's been a lot of chat about this one. It kind of came out of nowhere, and then it was everyone was talking about it on Twitter. I saw someone tweet about it that you could be a communist in it. What? So I was Brilliant. like, well, I've got to obviously pick up and you know play this uh, play this game. But I thought, yeah, I thought it'd be worth uh, discussing now, both because it's very good. and I've been sinking a lot of a lot of hours into it, but also because um, one of the things we complain about a lot in the in the world of cinema. Uh, is that um, uh, there's a lot of uh, blockbuster and other kinds of cinema that doesn't feel uh, like it's uh, dealing with uh, the contemporary world or it doesn't feel especially modern and a lot of stuff that relies on nostalgia yeah. um, or, you know, retellings of things. Uh, not just sequels, but also, like, original original properties. And this is a film which is, like, painfully contemporary. It's like... You know, something that feels like it might date quickly, but in a way that's refreshing. Yeah, sure. You know, there's far far too much of culture, I think, which is like worried about dating, dating itself rapidly. Not in a romantic sense, but uh, <laughs> just like feeling dated quickly.
2: I want to play this game in two weeks because I'm be like, what, the, what are they even talking about? What are about? they
1: talking about? Well, like you know there's a there's a bit there's a much broader cultural discussion to we have with this, but like when people make fun of like seventies fashion or like eighties fashion or even you know some of the stuff in the nineties like you look at the fresh prints, whatever, and yeah. how they dress or Seinfeld <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um uh, and then it feels like since then, in the decades, like there haven't been these kinds of big cultural expressions that become laughable quickly. Like, I don't think sure. loads and loads of people will be looking at how they dressed in 2008 and being like, I can't believe I had that mad fashion or whatever, because it just didn't exist. Yeah, of course. Like yeah. culture is kind of like, like flattened out and homogenized. And uh, and I would like there to be more things that people could look back on and be like, I can't believe I was into that. You know, I can remember we were all listening to that and enjoying that. So this game is a little bit like that, and it, it draws a lot on I think like left wing and like online in particular discourse in a way that's like you. Know, so it's it's from a sort of very leftist perspective in a very sort of like modern and online way. It's like the villain, well, like in Twitter account or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not a million miles away from that. Like, there's some quite a lot of like dunking on liberals nice um and uh it has like four of the hosts of the podcast Chapo trap house doing voiceovers of characters in the game oh, okay so you can wow. sort of see yeah, yeah. <laughs> see like generally where it's coming from um uh but it's so it's it's set in a in, in like a made-up uh fantasy universe in a, in a city where it's sort of like a decaying city in the outcome of a failed communist revolution and it's now being run by a, like a, a series of kind of capitalist liberal powers basically that are sort of rule it together and they neglect the people and uh, you play this amnesiac cop who's like trying to solve a murder so it's got this kind of rather familiar noirish uh setup but it's uh it's just a very very richly inventive and uh amusingly uh written uh and clever clever game which is doing all kinds of interesting things but yeah i just wanted to highlight that as a cultural product it's it it feels i think like part of what makes people excited about this game like there's been a lot of you know chat about how it's like really well written and uh there's there's it's a very like choice driven game where you, yeah. everything that you do will have these unknown ramifications all that kinds of stuff but i think that part of what makes it so refreshing is that other things are so sterile and it, and it's also because i was just uh taking my sweet ass time editing um episode 199 and when i was listening to that like one of the things i was saying about um both ad astra and joker the two two films i was reviewing that episode with uh, the ways in which they felt like emulations of a style rather than like an actual story or a message that the filmmaker was trying to get across, you know, like Joker yeah. is a sort of I like. I wanted to make a Scorsese film and be a big boy, grown up director, <laughs> and like Ad Astra is like, um, you know, I wanted to make a t- like Solaris type, you know, Tarkovsky film, or like, you know, I wanted to make a cerebral space epic. But when you watch them, it's not really clear what is, you know, what the why were they made? Like, what are you actually trying to tell me with this film? They lack a reason uh, to exist. That's like anchored in the real world i think um and they're just like imitations of something else uh and that you know playing this game it's like that's the, you get the opposite sensation and it's nice to be reminded in a way that such things exist and i wish that more of culture was like that
2: is it is this the existence of this game like partly due to the fact that there's been a sort of i'm not really about much of a gamer but i'm vaguely aware there's like the kind of indie game scene has sort of exploded maybe just because uh, technology is democratized to the point where it's kind of a bit like the 60s when it was filmmaking <laughs> like you know the studio system is in the be all and end all yeah and like the little the little game that could yeah i think it that's definitely yeah that's definitely
1: of- that is definitely part of it i mean that's been quite a long like that trend has been quite long running um and there's now you know m- more games released all the time than anyone could possibly play like it's a it's the 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 market is like very oversaturated. Um, but I think that's definitely part of it like it comes from a like a very small studio um and it seems like a real like labor of love um it 's got this very cool like watercolory art style that 's very particular and uh it 's very text heavy so you know if you 're averse to reading reading you know, in your in your video gaming then uh, I would avoid it I remember
2: it, but... Mario reading
1: books <laughs> <laughs> that's the best it's just, game it 's just it 's just pictures and yeah. images it's a lot yeah for pictures no it 's nothing like Mario. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do, I, I recommend it. So what, what, uh, what cultural products have you been consuming?
2: I've been consuming The Mandalorian. I've paid four grand for my Disney Plus account mm-hmm. just to watch The Mandalorian. That's a bargain. It's a bargain. <laughs> this is going to pay off eventually because I can watch Captain Marvel yeah. as many times as I want. That's because
1: so. that was four billion an episode to make The Mandalorian. Yeah. So uh,
2: My hot take is it's not very good. The way I describe it is it's a bit like watching a poorly translated anime uh, in that it's full of, like, vistas. Like, the main... To briefly go with the plot, such as it is, The Mandalorian, played by Pedro Pascal, that you wouldn't know because he wears his helmet the whole episode, and his voice is a bit kind of, like, mm-hmm. modulated. So just a guy. He's, like, the man with no name. He's, like, a Western, and he's, like, a bounty hunter. At the beginning of the episode, he's, like, finishing a job, and then he gets a new job from Werner Herzog in a sort of memorably weird cameo. And Bounty
1: hunting is a complicated the, profession.
2: Yeah, delivering... Like, with obvious contempt, like, so much sort of sci-fi babble about, like, how to track people. It's like, we only have the last four digits of his something. It's like, what? It's like,
0: whatever. space code. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And uh, then he goes to some place, meets a random character, does another thing. It's got a real, like, and then uh, kind of plotting, which is bad. It should be, so this happens, not and this happens. That's a
1: Hey, gay, that's a pro script editor's comment there
2: uh yeah this is very very flat it's uh it's directed by david feloni was like the showrunner of the clone wars uh show which is apparently quite well received but i think it kind of makes more sense as a cartoon than a live action thing and just feels very i mean maybe similar to what you're saying it's like it's right after like return of the jedi it's not even like new stuff it's like all the same old creatures or even the creatures that are new would just look a bit like that could have been in Jabba's palace or something. It's
1: just been written for the YouTube breakdown. So it's like 501 references yeah. to Star Wars that you missed.
2: And it's just uh, very, very flat. I'm not sure if Jon Favreau is the sort of creative genius Disney Plus think is, you know.
1: <laughs> He's not the head chef. He's not the head chef. He's just the guy, you know, and yeah, flipping burgers. Yeah,
2: he wrote the script and it's like, stop spending time making like, you know, Pad Thai of Seth Rogen and concentrate <laughs> on your day job of writing an actual script. Yeah. So I've cancelled my Disney Plus account. I had it for 40 minutes.
1: <laughs> I, I did, uh, well, it's good of you not to steal, the, yeah. to steal it by torrenting. Yeah, I would never it's, do that. It's good of you to to, to get the Disney Plus subscription oh, legally. Geez. Um. When you say that, I did actually watch um, some video on YouTube that was like a breakdown of the latest Star Wars trailer uh, for the new Star Wars film, Episode 9. And uh, there's a shot in that of a huge space fleet. And they were breaking down all of the references of the ships from different things. Wow. And it took up like 10 minutes. It was just like <laughs> and this. This that is. will never get that time th- back. I'll never get that time back. It's like, this is the ship from the Clone Wars, and this is the ship from this spin off, and this is the ship from this. And it's like, the ship from this is back. The ship from the video game, d- d- Star Wars Jedi 2 is back. You know, it's like, it was all that. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Like, look at these, this collection of five pixels. If we blow this up, it's clearly the fucking ship from this, you know, 1999 uh, LucasArts game or something. It's like, so weird. Who, like, so fucking what? Like, who cares? And like, oh, it's, it's especially ironic after the uh, the the "pass is dead, kill it if you have to" attitude of the Last Jedi. Yeah, it's yeah. like, no, I actually have a reference to every single previous <laughs> Star Wars product, toy, uh, game, advert, film, everything in one shot. So fuck you. Uh, yeah, funny.
2: And you watched this video? Give it gave it a thumbs up.
1: I subscri- I liked it. <laughs> sub- I smashed I smashed that subscribe button so hard him. I broke my screen <laughs> to get a new phone. Uh anyway Danny when we're not uh, watching breakdowns and whatnot uh I don't know what you're doing but that's what I'm doing. Uh what's this podcast about? What are you talking about? I'm glad you asked. We've actually a little synopsis I
2: wrote to explain it to you. So uh this podcast is about Sam Foster and his sister Danny Moran. They live in obscurity on a farm in Crisby Dale with their guardian Dick and Bowman. This is to protect them from the attainder placed upon their family by King Henry IV of England because their father has been falsely accused of treason and murdered by the Earl of Alban. One day, a hunting party comprising of the Earl of Alban, the Lord of Crispy Dale, and another nobleman, Sir Robert, stop at their farm for refreshment. They attempt to molest Danny, but Sam fends them off. This confrontation accelerates Dickon's plans to send them to Mackworth Castle in Derbyshire. The Earl of Mackworth, a close friend of their father, becomes their protector, and he sees in Sam the man who can rid England of the evil machinations of the Earl of Auburn. Sam is trained to be a knight, is knighted by the king, and kills the Earl of Alban in a trial by combat, foiling Auburn's plan to seize the English crown. Sam then marries the Earl of Macbeth's daughter, Lady Anne. This is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the film The Black Shield of Fourworth, starring Tony Curtis and Janet Leigh. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me, a man who has rescued me on countless times when people have tried to molest me, Sam Foster. Appreciate that, man.
1: No problems. Uh, That's what friends do. So on this episode of Film Chat, we're reviewing Netflix's historical epic The King, a very gritty and muddy retelling of Shakespeare's Henry IV and Henry V plays, which features some of the most shapely, form-hugging, slim-fit medieval plate armor you've ever seen adorning Timothy Chalamet. And here's Danny to review Doctor Sleep, the adaptation of Stephen King's sequel to The Shining, as well as a sort of sequel to the Kubrick film at the same time. Uh, did it make him so mad he wanted to murder his whole family? Or did it fill him with such childlike glee that he just wanted to roll about a big carpeted hallway in a tricycle, chasing after a ball? <laughs> That's a reference, reference to The Shining there. Uh, listen, listen, listen on to find out. Plus, two legendary directors announced new period set projects, Spike Lee going for a hip-hop reimagining of Romeo and Juliet set in the 80s called Prince of Cats. What, el- what else would he do? Obviously that and Paul Thomas Anderson is angling for a 70 set film about which we know little not that that will stop us spinning out a section discussing it for a good 20 minutes of wild unfounded speculations and all that should leave just enough time for my latest film project a Jeremy Corbyn led Labour government all right I know I've proposed some madcap wild schemes on this podcast before but this is going to be my most avant-garde film yet no cameras it won't be filmed uh, it's not going to be in cinemas it's just going to be the, the government of the uk <laughs> it's <laughs> and just gonna uh, be, man. it's just going to be the whole government going to be yeah uh and uh, instead of filming with cameras i'll just be campaigning uh to to get the Tories out and get corbyn into number 10 and this is a a film that you can make as well and that anyone can make just, just uh, look up your local, you know, Labour campaigning session. Go to mycampaignmap.com or look at the Labour Party's official website, labour. Find events. Go there. G- get him in. Get get Corbyn into government. Get my film made and released. And it, it could be the most successful film of all time. Not a lot of people will think of it in those terms, uh, but I will, <laughs> and you should too. Here, <laughs> here just a little just a little just a little propaganda there <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, r- I hope we lose some uh, listenership from that i hope we get an angry thing saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's not wild isn't it film chat stop politicizing my film podcast films <laughs> films 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 lots of films 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 Good films, bad films, fun films, sad films 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 films, Lars one films Old films, new films, some John blue films Films that star Peter Fitch Films by David Lynch Films, short films, six hours long We've got films up to your gills With films, 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 films time to open the mailbag address a a dusty old (laughs) letter in it um we got it we got a message from uh, regular listener hoppo very nice to hear from you and i'm sorry that it took us a while to get around to this film chat schedule has been a little off lately which i blame entirely myself for anyway hoppo he messaged us on twitter to say while waiting impatiently for the next film chat episode, I noticed that Joker soundtrack has "Send in the Clowns," "Smile," "Put on a Happy Face," "Laughing," and "People Are Strange." What, in the opinion of Film Chat's hive mind, are Hollywood's most trite soundtrack choices? That's pretty, Well, that takes some beating, surely. That—that is—that's—that's got to be the ultimate. And actually, I—I'm glad that you sent us this because I didn't address this um, when I was reviewing it. But it's—it's it's very true. So in the in the sort of early scene where joaquin phoenix takes sort of revenge on a bunch of um, obnoxious wall street bros yeah the thing that like tips him over the edge and makes him really angry is like one of them gets up goes over to him and starts singing send in the clowns like because he's dressed like a clown right nobody would do that <laughs> <laughs> like why would like he's also sort of singing it in this like sneery bro type way right, but it's course. such a um sort of like maudlin uh Song that it just sounds really, really funny in the, in, the, in the mouth of this like drunken, like banker guy, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is, it is ridiculous. Do you think they should have used a bit
2: of uh, what's that insane uh, clown posse, like the miracles song? Oh, uh, yeah, fucking magnets. How, do, how they do they work? Yeah, <laughs> water, fire, air, and dirt, fucking magnets. How do they work?
1: And- insane clown posse, that would have been yeah, perfect. On, clown he, posse. He's an insane clown.
2: Does he have a posse?
1: Yeah, he actually does. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the film. Because he's like he inspires all these other people to start dressing like clowns and stuff. And then like the Insane Clown Posse, they have uh, there's a name for their um their fans who dress like clowns. Do you know what it is?
2: No. What? <laughs> so was that like what well, you gonna set you up? For like, are we gonna say, <laughs> They're called this? Like
1: Um, I'm gonna I am gonna look that up and I will announce it shortly. But yeah, that, that that would have been that would have been the absolute uh, the, the perfect thing. I don't know, so it can't be the most trite soundtrack because they didn't have the because they didn't clown have posse. the obvious the most on the nose would have been Insane Clown Posse.
2: The only ones I can think of are filmmakers who use it in a deliberately, like it's so obviously on the nose. Is the point? Like Edgar Wright does it a lot in his movies. Like uh, Sean is listening to Zombie Nation and Shaun of the Dead, and then Hot Fuzz. Every time there's a murder, someone drives like Timothy Dalton drives past, and like the song he's listening to is like when the actors have been killed playing Romeo and Juliet Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits are playing and the fire song was playing off they burn the g- guy in his mansion um and someone else who does it a lot is Lars von Trier does it like sort of like comically on the nose needle drops like for the end credits like has uh, Young Americans by David Bowie who's so all like <laughs> this jazzy uh saxophone part comes in right after a, a very violent ending yeah and, uh nymphomaniac ends with a shooting and the main character is called joe and it's a really breathy version of hey joe by Charlotte <laughs> and uh spoiler alerts i guess depending on it's not really a plot spoiler but the house that jack built ends with hit the road jack right but yeah i don't know like uh, i've never i think it's that sort of who was the first to do it kubrick the sort of ironic soundtrack choice which then was like maybe most popularized by like tarantino and Rose Tarantino and like scorsese i guess before him and then it becomes it became so over the top that it's almost like annoying now i like something that put me off uh, joker was like the trailer the fact that they used like smile by demons like of course they did it's yeah. the same way they used, th- that's
1: very representative of the film
2: yeah the same way they used uh johnny cash's version of hurt over logan it's like, uh, you know, it's ironic, isn't it? Or like, old oh man, regretful, uh, playlist, number one hit on Spotify hurt, to catch, slap it on the movie. It's deep now.
1: The Spotify algorithm did make the soundtrack to the Joker movie. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's like he's having a clown themed party and it's like typing <laughs> it on Spotify. Like...
1: Yeah, absolutely uh the probably the only piece of music on the joker soundtrack that it doesn't directly reference clowns as well was slightly controversial because it's the uh gary glitter um oh, rock and
2: roll part two uh yeah yeah
1: yeah
2: we just uh have to pay royalties to a pedophile now for using it
1: oh. yeah <laughs> don't put a clip in the episode of that song.
2: surely like the money doesn't go to him anymore right
1: well, like, you'd hope, you'd hope, I don't know, like, when you get convicted of child sex offences, do they take away your uh, IP, I don't, like, property <laughs> rights? I don't know.
2: Because it's made a lot of money, Joker. Yeah. How much of that money is going to convicted pedophile Gary Glitter? I really
1: hope some, uh, some journalist is looking into how much richer Gary Glitter became from the joke film. Especially because, so that, that, that sort of soundtracks the, the scene where he's dancing on the stairs, which you might have seen in the trailers if you haven't seen the movie. Uh, which is completely extraneous to the plot of the film, and it could be any song. He's just—it's not like it's a critical that it must be that Gary Glitter song. Like, it could be absolutely any song whatsoever. Just pick one of the many songs that are not written by not written by paedophiles. You know.
2: Todd. Bug. Yeah.
1: Just an example. Just a, an opportunity for 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 a complaint that I didn't get around to in my initial review. So yeah. uh, like, <laughs> thanks to thanks to this message, I can shoehorn that in. Thank yeah. That is a that is a good question. I will continue to ponder this. I didn't really contribute much to this section, uh, but but I'm gonna I'm gonna think about it while listening to some of my favorite um, clown clown based music and re- reminiscing about Joker. Um, it's uh, Juggalos is the name of insane clown posse fans, right? The, they like their fans like who look like them and like they have like Juggalo conventions and stuff. But basically, the plot of Joker is that he gets like a Juggalo mob to you know start r- wrecking shit because they get inspired by his uh, murder of uh, Wall Street bros. As, as, as would as would happen in, in reality if that happened Of course Because it's such a real film It's a real film It's real. so real It's a film for big boys Who, who <laughs> like real cinema Big boy film Fucking
0: Magnus How do they work And I don't want to talk to a scientist Y'all
1: motherfuckers lying And getting me pissed Superhero films announced Casting rumours leaking out M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated Meryl Streep's Oscar tips. Matt Damon's in a viral vid Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. So we're all looking forward to the film Cass. We all love Prince of Persia. We all love love the film Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. And finally, uh, Spike Lee is bringing bringing the two together, (laughs) the two properties in one film. Uh, So um, he had a big success recently with uh, Black Handsman Spike Lee. Um, uh, And so he's obviously back on form, even though, you know, we gave this yeah, movie a middling review.
2: He won his first Oscar. He won his, his first Oscar, hit. yeah. It was a big part of the sort of conversation in the award season, I guess. So, Absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. So uh, all eyes on Spike, see what he's going to do next. And what he's doing is a film called Prince of Cats, which is going to be a hip-hop spin on Romeo and Juliet set in the 80s. Here is the film's official logline. Film centers on Tibalt and his Capulet brothers who navigate the People's Republic of Brooklyn where underground sword dueling, including katanas, with the rival Montagues, blossoms into a vibrant world. The world includes hip-hop essentials such as DJing, MCing, breakdancing, and graffiti. Intriguing. Uh, so it's based on a, a graphic novel by Ron Wimberly, which uh, Lee is uh, adapting himself. Uh, and that's about, that's about all we know. What do, you th- what do you think of this? How do you think this sounds?
2: Uh, well, I'm all for sort of like weird takes on Shakespeare. I think maybe because he did Chirac, it makes me quite, uh, or more confident that he'd find a way to like turn that kind of Shakespeare dialogue into something kind of vibrant and alive. Because
1: that's true. It is. Yeah, it's kind of similar to Chirac. like an adaptation in, in
2: iambic pentameter and everyone spoken verse.
1: Yeah, it's like an Aeschylus uh, play. Yeah, turned into a sort of hip hopera type thing. Because I think mean, quite but, effectively.
2: Yeah, a big problem with Shakespeare adaptations is that either they don't do the language in which case what's the point or they they do it but they don't successfully translate it into cinema so it's just like watching a film play or it gets very stodgy and I think that's why like Baz Luhrmann's I don't know if this is like a real uh like populist view but I think that's the best Shakespeare adaptation because it manages to like inject that play into like real vibrancy and it's sort of slightly like very dated 90s MTV way but
1: no, no, it's, it's, it's very cheap. very. a of Branagh. This does sound a little bit like Chirac meets Baz Luhrmann's Romeo yeah. and Juliet. And maybe, as well, it works really effectively when so much of the language is just really familiar because it's just in pop culture. Yeah. If, you, if someone uses the phrase, where for art thou, Romeo, you know exactly what it means, even though the actual language is not, you know... Yeah. You, you wouldn't mean, actually understand what where for art thou means. You don't need the York notes on. No. Yeah, it, exa- exactly. But yeah. I guess
2: this take is from Tybalt's perspective. It well, doesn't have it, that many lines in the original. Fr- from
1: that description, it does sound... Uh, like it won't necessarily just take the uh the dart like the actual language of shakespeare if it's centering on Tybalt, who's <laughs> obviously not the main character in romeo and juliet
2: he just hates peace <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: yeah as he hates hell and whatever all, all Montagues or whatever and they and, and the i don't know whatever whatever all right i'm not a fucking shakespeare scholar i think it's so so something like the that the entire play I'm just <laughs> whatever. What, whatever whatever you whatever you know. get thee to a nunnery somewhere like that <laughs>
2: You know, two houses or whatever. <laughs> and like indignity. What something I like, that? Shit <laughs> like that. Yeah,
1: that's the that's the uh, update. Like civil
2: blood or something. I don't know. Like
1: that's the updated uh, millennial version. The apathetic millennial version of it. Star crossed or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> Star crossed or some
2: shit
1: like that. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but it, it does. It does. You know, it sounds like a very sounds like a fun movie. I'm 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 all for it. I mean, when we we're going to talk about the king later. Which uh, does doesn't use Shakespeare's language, but kind of like reaches for I don't know Shakespearean intensity or something like that. Yeah, um, and is a bit like weird. <laughs> doesn't <laughs> does, doesn't like quite succeed in in whatever it's uh, whatever it's trying to do. Um, and yeah, taking the sort of like I don't know colorful like pop culture route um, to Shakespeare can be a very effective way to do it. Peace. I hate the word.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: Another important auteur news. Paul Thomas Anderson, probably one of, if not the greatest American filmmaker of his generation, Got a huge acclaim as his last film, Phantom Fred, as he has for every film he's made since his debut, probably. Uh, but he is not resting on his laurels. He's going to make another film. We know very little about it, apart from the fact that it's going to start shooting in early 2020. It's going to be set in the 1970s the 1970s in uh, San Fernando Valley, which is where he grew up, I believe, and it's where Boogie Nights is set. And it's going to be about a successful child actor. And a, the film is said to be an ensemble film that has intersecting storylines... And another bit of news attached to this was apparently Leonardo DiCaprio was offered a role, but he turned it down in favor of a Gilmero Del Toro project. But DiCaprio was a child actor, and he turned down the lead in Boogie Nights, and he turned down PTA again. What a maniac. Maniac. That Gilmero Del Toro script must have been bloody good. Gamma. Yeah, so new Californian set, 70s movie from PTA. Well, it's I mean, he
1: could sort of... I feel like he just could announce anything and I'd be like, that sounds intriguing. I'm yeah, absolutely. Certainly, certainly going to watch that.
2: But I think this is a good opportunity to discuss what we were discussing earlier in even more depth, which is my theory, which has a million holes in it. But <laughs> <laughs> a loose idea that uh, old Hollywood, or like, which is like... Old a, new Hollywood. Old new Hollywood, which is like your Scorseses, your Spielbergs, that kind of generation... And even like new Hollywood, the sort of 90s kids like Wes Anderson, Tarantino, PTA, none of them are making films set in the present anymore. And I don't know if it's maybe it's a certain like freakonomics thing where like if you have enough clout to get a budget, there's the temptation to do a period film because it's just fun to build sets and stuff.
1: So many cars. Nice so many, cars. Yeah. <laughs>
2: but uh no me, i think i think yeah, it's very true and it I, made, yeah sorry and it made me think that the films i was looking at like my best of the year list started compiling that and also it's like the a lot of people on twitter are posting the best of the decade and the kind of films that i've really like uh made an impression on me this year are stuff like eighth grade or burning or Bates. and like going back a few years like get out or tony erdman they're all films about now and ones that period films are sort of like fallen by the wayside a little bit in my from the ones that come to mind like four lines i think about that movie a lot i think that's probably one of the best films of the decade yeah uh i don't know what my point is well, i think i think masters aren't
1: i think you can you can definitely see that in something like um once upon a time in hollywood which is a film about a turning point in history and the current period is so febrile and volatile And it feels like something that people will look back upon and, you know, you could like craft a narrative around that about this is the fulcrum around which uh, two periods turned in the same way that people look at the Manson killings like that with the end of the 60s and so on. Mm. But it's because that's back in the past where it's all set settles and everything like that. You know, Tarantino can kind of like inspect it and do his own twist on it and make it neat and sort of tidy and when you listen to him talking about it he's so in love with all of the trappings of that uh, of that of that era and like the easy riders raging bulls style yeah, story yeah, 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 that yeah, he yeah. can tell about like the like the transition of hollywood like it is like i think the movie is basically like going to a tarantino teacher's hollywood history course or something like that yeah whereas you know you could not make a film like that about right now because or, or perhaps you could but you would be you would be essaying a, a sort of dangerous hypothesis rather than doing your own fun take on an existing hypothesis that is very very well known um and that's just like harder harder for people to do and i think that movie is like um as we talked about when we when we reviewed it has a a bit of like small c conservatism to it Uh, and i think that you are just seeing that from directors you know like they don't really, it's too, the stuff is too messy and ridiculous now. I don't think it's that different from Jon Snow saying to Chris Morris, don't you think you can't do satire anymore because the world is too stupid? And he's yeah, like, no, you can do it. But, but hard. it's just hard. But also it's like Chris Morris himself isn't actually doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah, it is, it is, it is hard. And it, I guess the, maybe the, the glib, but possibly still correct conclusion to draw is that these guys just don't actually have anything to say about the modern world, really. They just they just have stuff to say about the world they, you know they understand and they and they grew up in. Yeah, like I don't like Phantom Thread is a great film, but it's yeah, not it's like yeah. You know, I mean, it's a brilliant film, but it's so, like it's a it's not I don't you know it's not a sort of comment or anything on, yeah, on contemporary society, like, uh, which is fine. Uh, yeah, not every like, film has to be there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But
2: also, like with relation to this new a PTA project. I wonder if it's a thing where, like, when an old male director, like, hits 50, they have to make a film about their childhood or, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's about... he grew, He's 1971, I think he was born. So, right. like, he is a child of the 70s and it's like, I'm, I will make my Roma now. That's the thing people do these days when you get to a certain age and have money. Yeah. I recreate my uh, childhood with, like, millions and millions of dollars worth of production design.
1: There's something, like... There's also something kind of... Um quite comfortable about these films you know yeah they're very they are they do feel like films made by very very established guys who know what they're doing and they're not troubled <laughs> you know like uh it doesn't have that like what like we were just talking about spike lee a second ago and that sort of like yeah. weird zany like quality to it where it's a bit like raw rough around the edges and and uh and most of these other guys don't don't really have that like the, they're producing these like really really polished products that you know as in some cases are really brilliant but they don't feel you know challenging
2: yeah like the most exciting filmmakers i don't know who'd be on the cover of little white Lies, it's like the safety brothers or bong joon ho or something absolutely really like, yeah but like the palm door like can has got a better sort of uh finger on its pulse a little bit because they gave like uh bong joon ho the palm door for parasite and they gave uh harizo Kareda One for Shoplifters last year. Yeah, Shoplifters.
1: That's a fucking brilliant film.
2: Yeah. Even something like Knives Out. Like, the haves and the have-nots. Like, if you're not addressing that as a theme, I'm not sure if you're, like, plugged into the culture, (laughs) you know? Because it's so obviously there. Mm. I don't know. So my point is, these old men—you know his whole Tarantino's fear about making old man movies. Like you're
1: already making—he's made the old man movies. It's he was like, absolutely correct about where his uh, where his career was going to go. It's quite funny, isn't it? Yeah, like when he said that, make when he said old like, man movies, but I've like, just made this three-hour film <laughs> wallowing
2: in the past. It's like. <laughs>
1: yeah. Exactly. Okay. You know, fair play to him for foresight about where his career was going to go.
2: Uh, saying that, I mean, Paul Simpson is kind of a genius. In, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, it'll, probably be, pieces, it'll, so it'll probably be, amazing, it'll so. probably be, it'll probably
1: be brilliant. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, like, yeah, his, his movies are really good. And I did think Phantom Thread um, was one of the best that he's, that he's made recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's just a very, like, gentle, nice film, really, for the most yeah. part. Yeah. Uh, I want
2: to be terrified going to the cinema. I don't want to be watching a horror film. Yeah, exactly. I want to go see a comedy and be really fucking terrified. Being terrified, (laughs) and I want to go see a horror and want to laugh my ass off. I want to see a rom com (laughs) be full of dread. Okay. Yeah,
1: well, that's why you like get out.
2: Yeah, exactly. I want the genre and the experience I have to be in complete (laughs) opposing forces to each other. That's
1: what it means to make a truly contemporary film. Exactly. Anyway, and that's the that's going to be the basis for my essay about why Avengers Endgame is real contemporary (laughs) cinema. And whereas Scorsese's navel-gazing, backward-looking gangster epic is the real trash. Yeah. I haven't seen it, so I can't can't write that essay yet. But whatever it is, I actually like. I will still be writing that take. Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look good. To it. Fuck you, Scorsese. Yeah. I'm not letting those comments that absolutely dominated Twitter for about two months go. I've got to still talk about them.
2: I'm gonna fucking carve it into his fucking gravestone when he dies.
1: I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm buying my fucking, uh, <laughs> what is the implement you use to carve stone with? A chisel. <laughs> my chisel, I'm buying that now. Buying that right now. My Scorsese gravestone vandalism chisel. <laughs> <laughs> to make my point. Getting that now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I know what to get you for Christmas. <laughs>
1: Thanks, man. Appreciate that. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw, was it staggeringly brilliant, was it arse awesome, we poor, out of Danny form a judgment, we're about to hear his thoughts, if he does a
2: rubbish job then Sam will tell him off. Sam, the year is 2019, Werner Herzog is in the Star Wars TV show, the latest Mars Scorsese film is going straight to Netflix, and New McGregor stars in the Shining sequel. What? What? So Doctor Sleep, this is written directed by Mike Flanagan, uh, based on the book... Go to Sleep by Stephen King, which was a sequel to the book The Shining. Uh, in it, Ewan McGregor plays Danny Torrance, the little kid from The Shining. He's now grown up and following the events <laughs> of The Shining. <laughs>
1: That's good, because he, he wouldn't be able to play him as a kid. No, so. no it's it, it would be ter- <laughs> He plays him in the flashbacks as well.
2: Um, as you'd imagined of somebody who's, you know, been chased and amazed by the axe-wielding father, he's a little traumatized by that. And it casts a shadow of his life and he becomes an alcoholic. And in his 40s, he sort of straightens his life out, gets sober and starts working as an orderly at a hospital where he uses his psychic ability, his ability to shine, to comfort people before they die and sort of ease their transition to the afterlife. Uh, meanwhile, Rebecca Ferguson plays Rose the Hat. She is a leader of a gang of psychic vampires who suck the power out of people, have the shining, and then that kills them. like if you've got the shining, the, the, her gang is out for you, they torture you and they kind of suck it out as this kind of steam. Just go with it. And they are trying to track down a girl called Abra who has immense power and they see her as you know a future feast for their steam sucking and she <laughs> but Abra has a psychic link with uh, Danny. Here's a clip of uh, them discussing their powers.
3: You're magic, like me.
0: I don't know about magic. I, I always called it the shining. And yeah, we both shine. Do your parents know? About my shine? They don't talk about it. Or if I use it, they look at me different. When I was a kid, I didn't understand the shining. I called it Tony. I thought he was my imaginary friend. I thought you were my imaginary friend for a long time how many
2: of us are out there
0: there's a lot of people who have a little bit of shine they don't even know it they always seem to come home with flowers when their wives are sad or they do well in a school test they didn't study for but i only met two or three people in my whole life who knew they shined
2: so this is it's quite a strange film and i think sort of maybe speaks we always talk about these kind of weird films which feel like ips that just have to produce a sequel or whatever And it's an interesting challenge for the director because in 1979, Stanley Kubrick makes The Shining and Stephen King hates it. And he takes massive liberties with the source material and sort of changes the meaning, which the book is much more about alcoholism and uh, much more sort of family character drama. And the movie is sort of that, but more about this kind of sense of dread. I think people's takeaway from The Shining is just the sort of atmosphere of it rather than the actual plot mechanics. Yeah, definitely. So Stephen King hates it so much so he makes his own version of it years later, which is generally considered to be terrible. And then he makes a book, which is a sequel. Sorry. And then he makes a book, just makes it out of paper. He just like cuts down some trees. You know, He's very laborious in his writing. So he writes the sequel to the book. And then Mike Flanagan has to make a faithful adaptation of Dr. Sleep, but at the same time make a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, because more people have seen The Shining and it's such an iconic film. So it's kind of like a sort of patient zero for like a lot of horror that came afterwards. A lot of like horror movies you know have the DNA of the shining in them because it's such a sort of iconoclastic like piece of work. And the fact that he manages to sort of for the most part uh, sort of marshal these two uh, obstacles and makes them into a very accessible entertaining movie is very impressive and I gotta say I really enjoyed it. And I don't know if it's a, a matter of having like low expectations going in. But it manages to be its own thing for the most part in a way which I think is very impressive. I would say it's not really a horror movie with the exception of one deeply unsettling sequence. It's much more of a supernatural action thriller slash character drama. It's more similar to the It movies uh, in that kind of tone, which is like it's like Stand By Me plus a monster. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think that's sort of the template for this type of film. So it's much more plot orientated and by virtue of the fact that lots of characters uh, have the shining, uh, it's a much more intricate the plot. I think deliberately so. Whereas the shining is like in one location, it's much more like sprawling, there's more uh, colourful warmth. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, a lot more lore. And I think the funnest bit of the movie is that because they've got these weird powers, at least these very sort of inventive, uh, shining action sequences where the way people use their powers for good and evil, uh, lead to, like, some very just unconventional plotting. Like, you know, the fights take... There's, like, a bit where Rebecca Ferguson sort of travails the astral plane. And it's a bit like, this movie's fucking brilliant. It's X-Men or something? Yeah, like, a little bit. Uh, But I really enjoyed it. It's a very long movie. It's two and a half hours long. Wow. And it held my interest throughout. (laughs) And I, like... Which, I I wasn't bored for a second. I just, like... No
1: wonder they call this Doctor Sleep.
2: (laughs) Brilliant. Uh... (laughs) It's just it's I like the attitude of the film, which I think is probably closer to Stephen King's attitude, where it really cares about his characters and basically just takes the time for you to invest in them. And there's just something quite winning about Danny Torrance as this guy's been through trauma. He's an alcoholic, but he's like trying to do right by people. And it's got this attitude like uh, Cliff Curtis plays like his sponsor, who's like a former alcoholic, who's just basically he can tell when someone's in need and just helps them out, uh, which is very different to the Stanley Kubrick slightly cold mm. uh, people or objects for me to manipulate, do another take and get it right. Uh, I don't care if you're losing your hair, you know, Shetty devolved to do it again uh, kind of approach. And there is something a bit fourth wall breaking about the plot, but also makes perfect sense story wise because the shadow of the shining kind of hangs over this movie. But in the same way, it's kind of like the trauma of the character's childhood. So it makes sense that at some point you have to go back to the hotel. And by the time that happens, and it's not really a spoiler because it's trailed everywhere. And uh, if you, I think one of the reasons why the critical reaction has been sort of surprisingly positive is because people just expected like a sort of really cash in psycho Two style uh, retread of the movie, but it basically, it takes the time. And by the time it gets to the overlook hotel, it's kind of earned it. And rather than it feeling inevitable, there's something slightly thrilling about like, we're literally going back into the shining and like, the way it's done is so sort of knowing and OTT. I personally found it kind of like quite charming, but I could see if you were like a real shining hardcore guy, you might like like balk at the idea. But like when it's like we have to go to this place and like the score kicks in and like they're driving down the road, it's like, oh shit, we're going to imagine the shining. There's something like, what's going to happen? It's like a weird metatextual space the movie enters where it does come a little undone is that it directly references bits in the shining in a way that's like very on the nose. Like the poster is like you McGregor, like peering through the ax uh, yeah, destroyed yeah, yeah. door or whatever. And it so, looks like the DVD cover to the shining. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just like recreating. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like a, uh, influencer has gone to a famous location recreating. <laughs> <laughs> and those bits kind of took me out of the movie. Cause it's like, uh, it's much better when it's doing its own thing. And like, I don't know. It just sort of it goes for the low hanging fruit of just recreating bits. It's
1: like there's some producer who's like we need this for the trailer.
2: <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But for the most part I've, I've really I really dug the movie. Yeah. I really like I thought Ewan McGregor was great in it. it. Brings a lot of sort of jittery weight to his role. Like he's the man who looks like he's lived a
1: lot. Well, he's you know, I mean he's he's in his 40s, isn't he? He's in his 40s, or maybe 50, I don't know. So he's lived a lot.
2: Yeah, he's lived a lot, mate. Uh and, years. Uh Cliff Curtis I think does a it does a really great, it's a real definition of like a, a great supporting turn. He's like, I'm not here to sort of carry the load of the movie, but I just make a very memorable impression with like quite a like a sketchily drawn character. And Rebecca Ferguson is having so much fun. I think that's why the movie is not that scary is that the sort of vampires are quite a sort of ragtag bunch of like, they've each got like just enough personality to make them distinct. And you kind of like hang out with them, even though they are uh, pure evil.
1: Is anyone as good as Michael Sheen's character from Twilight? <sighs> it's not quite <laughs> so doing Anything level. as hammy. <laughs>
2: uh yeah and it's got like a pleasingly kind of hopeful approach to it the recurring line in the movie is like we go on like there's an afterlife if people love you they'll remember you uh and i think maybe that's just like stephen king when he wrote the shining sequel it's also a bit of a fuck you to stanley kubrick at the same time Mm.
1: because that movie is much more like um time is a circle you're trapped in hell forever yeah yeah exactly
2: But yeah, I uh, I, th- I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it's a bit clumsy at times and it probably didn't have to be two and a half hours long, but it's just, it's weird. It's a, a pleasingly weird, entertaining film, which uh, takes the time to sort of invest in the characters. Cool. So I liked it, I gotta say. Nice. It's a pleasant surprise.
1: Yeah, I I, I, I was, uh, I did think it seemed a bit like cash in at least the marketing was very Yeah, yeah. I think like it's not just that the marketing leans so heavily on references to the shining but that it just seemed like it was being marketed by people who were not confident in their product. I think like sometimes there's a sheen of desperation on like <laughs> like trailers, you know. Um uh, that make you feel like they, they know they've got a turkey and they're like, we just need people who like The Shining to watch this yeah, by yeah, any yeah. means necessary, you know, because like, the film itself is up, it's not good. That's kind of the impression I got. So, yeah. So it's nice to hear that it's, that is not like that. And also maybe as well because of the, like, absolutely bizarre uh, Shining sequence from Ready Player One. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like once burnt, twice shy with these, like, bizarre Shining cash ins. Um, so, yeah, no, that sounds good.
2: it didn't send me to Dr. Sleep. Don't talk sleep on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
1: Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. If you're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. Let's join Share between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak? Or do they interrupt each
0: other? The light is on. The guys are in. So let the chance Let the chat begin.
1: Okay. the king that's the next film we're going to review it is a historical epic um not drawn on uh, real history but instead it's an adaptation of shakespeare's henry ad plays uh henry the fourth part one henry four part two and henry the fifth all compressed into one tight two-hour netflix film package yes starring timothy chalamet as uh as henry the fifth uh it's directed by david michaud um and written by him and joel edgerton they've collaborated a number of times david michaud uh made the next film animal kingdom and like a few other movies which the have rover. made enormous splashes yeah the rover with guy pierce and you know so he's sort of been around he's been doing stuff and it hasn't really set the world on fire since um people really liked animal kingdom although i've not seen it have you seen it no nah. no so no nah. no nah, haven't seen it haven't seen it. Um, so uh, this film uh, is quite odd. I, I saw it at the uh, London Film Festival. I, like, I would not say I necessarily prioritized like, the best possible viewing that festival. I got up some, like, very early in the morning to go see a uh, uh, press screening of this at like 9 a.m. or something. And I was like, why well, should just... Well, I was about to say like, to you some. saw it on
2: the big screen and I watched it on my laptop. So. Oh, I guess we can yeah. compare experiences. So you saw the Netflix film and it's in a rare cinematic... You know, you saw yeah. on the big screen. You got to see Chalamet. You know, ten foot big or whatever. I see a
1: ten foot tall, uh, hulking Chalamet. His big booming voice. <laughs> I was like, intimidating. It's how I feel whenever I see a film. Well, these p- humans are enormous. Um, yeah, it's not. It's not an especially successful film. It's. It's very reminiscent of uh, Outlaw King, the other recent um, king-based, king-based uh, <laughs> historical Netflix film. They sort of got a. They got similar aesthetics. I think like takes on historical dramas. They're a bit like. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's it's as if they're a reaction to a trend for sort of Renaissance fair uh, type. Um, historical epics and it's like no no no, no, you don't get it like there was a lot of mud back in the day and so like all of our characters are going to be covered in mud and the film will just generally be sort of brown um i don't know i guess it's probably game of very game of thrones influence you know like just it just looks kind of gritty but um isn't gritty in the sense of being hard to watch it's just gritty in the sense of like there's mud smeared on the lens just to remind us that the hygiene was really bad you know the period when this was set um uh it also has made a rather strange choice by um do I? By the way, do I need to explain the part? I mean, does everyone know what? Maybe I will, just in case.
2: Uh, he ascends you know. to the throne and has to deal with the French, right? That's, that's <laughs> yeah. There you go. That,
1: that's basically it. Like yeah, the, the Henry Henry the Fourth part one and two about him as this um, kind of prodigal son uh, type thing for uh, Henry the Fourth. And uh, he is like off carousing and so on and not being very royal and then his father dies and then he has to kind of step up and stepping up involves uh, declaring war in France and, you know, going and fighting the bloody, dastardly, bloody, bloody Frenchmen Ugh. and taking back Britain's rightful lands, which are in France, but they still clearly belong to England.
2: Yes. To steer our present course, I've been forced to rely upon the counsel of men whose
0: loyalty I question every waking moment. Every waking moment. I need men around me I can trust. I'm here because you are my friend. (laughs) A king has no friends.
1: A king has only followers and foe. And yeah, so one of the strange decisions that's made is to adapt Shakespeare, but to write to do its own language but then the sort of cadence of the language is itself rather shakespearean so people don't talk in a sort of modern way they 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 talk in ye olde english a little bit but they still swear so it's like shakespeare's yeah. boring because there's no f-bombs but you know in this movie there's a couple of like you know fuck you henry or whatever people say things along those lines
2: oh is a fuck boy
1: that was a fuck boy yeah exactly and that what that does is just constantly remind you of the actually really good Shakespeare language, yeah, you know, yeah. like they're very famous plays, but even if you're not familiar with them, you're aware that, you know, it's one of the greatest writers in history and so on. <laughs> There's a reason why, it's really good reason why they're so uh, performed because the language is really memorable and good. And it, it does scenes like famous scenes from the Shakespeare plays, but it's just sort of rewritten in yeah, yeah you know, yeah. by in Joel Edgerton's language and you know, he's not he's just not as good as Shakespeare. You
2: know Shakespeare, mate.
1: <laughs> yeah, so they've got the uh they've sort of got the uneasy is the uh head that wears lies the head that wears the crown or whatever yeah. like except it's just different and they've got the the famous saint Crispin's day saint Crispin's day speech from henry v but it's like instead it's got this odd thing where um timothy shalmay opens that speech by saying i'm sure you're all expecting me to do a big speech right now and it seems like this really yes. <laughs> massive wink towards the audience by what we're expecting to say but obviously he doesn't deliver the, the language of that speech it's kind of a differently written one and it's just odd it's just like why didn't you just adapt the thing like i just kind of wished i was watching the hollow crown or something that that bbc series with uh, tom hiddleston yeah, yeah. Where, where they where they did the shakespeare plays while, rather well you know and like in full most for the most part like unabridged versions so they're very long but it just they're very good you know because the, the plays are really really good yeah, yeah. um and so this ends up feeling like a bit of an odd knockoff and it, because it's not doing shakespeare um, it just it highlights the fact that it doesn't really have its own angle. I'm not really sure what exactly they were going for with this. Yeah, and it I does absolutely. feel like a film that was made because Netflix set aside a certain amount of budget for a historical drama or something and they would just like, just make it, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so it kind of passes, th- this is like a very Netflix-y kind of film watching experience. You know, like it passes the time, you're watching it, you're sort of not that bored. Like one of those, it's okay to check your phone during it type yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. Um and uh yeah, but you know doesn't leave it doesn't leave a really strong impression i think timothy chalamet is also rather strange casting i think i think he's an example of uh, like a slightly weird attitude towards historical accuracy where like it's possible that the the sort of look of it is very faithful to the period in terms of how people dress or what the knights looked like or whatever i'm not i'm not a historical yeah, expert yeah. so i don't i don't know which in itself is weird because it's based on plays not based on history so you don't even need to do that but like Henry V is was a rather kind of skinny-looking, dark-haired guy or whatever. So they've like cast, you know, yeah. Timothy Chalamet to play him. But in the role, it's I don't think it really works because first of all, Chalamet I think gives off an extremely modern aura. That's one one thing yeah, about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's a surly, like indie kid. I think they've also dressed him in really slim-fit, kind of top man type. Like, he looks like a sort of muscle indie fit. rock band. Yeah. <laughs> no, not muscle fit, because that's, like, the opposite. Oh, sorry, yeah. He's got zero, no, mu- he's got fit. zero muscle fit, <laughs> yeah. which is the clothes the clothes that I buy. Uh, I'm sure his wardrobe would fit me really well. I don't know. Yeah, I'm yeah. just like, I want to dress up in your clothes, but, I, you know, I don't want to watch you in them. <laughs> but I will not follow you into battle. I <laughs> will not follow you into battle. Well, that's the thing, is that he doesn't really... He doesn't come across as the kind of guy who would go carousing you know with wenches or whatever Mm. he's required to do in the first part of the film like he doesn't have that level of libidinous energy and at the same time he also doesn't seem like a warrior king who's leading an army against the french like there's there's a scene where he defeats um percy hotspur in a duel it's like it's like he he probably couldn't even walk in the armor that he's wearing like let alone, like, d- d- beat a man in one-to-one combat with a big fucking sword. Like, it just don't, I just don't buy it in any yeah, way. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, I completely agree. It's a very weirdly cast film. I think uh, the highlights for me were, like, Ben Mendelssohn as Henry Fourth, just, like, sort of hissing from a throne. He's just always good value for money. Ben Mendelsohn
1: is great. And, like, That's such a good actor.
2: Yeah, he just sort of nails the tone uh, a bit better. And the guy who plays Percy Hotspur, James Carney who was Mark Ronitz's son in Dunkirk, and we saw him in this movie, Rialto, I've, in my head, like, because he plays Percy Hotspur, Chalamet plays Prince Hal, and Robert Pattinson plays the French king, but it's like, Chalamet should play the French king, <laughs> Arbat should be Percy Hotspur, and this James Carney guy should be the lead, because he did such, he was memorably, like, intense and charismatic. And Definitely. I, and I totally bought him as a medieval dude he could probably defeat me in a duel. Yeah, yeah. There's but a they, scene, there's
1: like one of the first scenes of the film is him kind of laying down the law to Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, as, as, he's and it's got it, real presence. Real presence, yeah.
2: In a way that Chalamet, Chalamet does Chalamet's this
1: sort of whiny guy. Yeah. Like, yeah, he doesn't have any of that.
2: So I would say, you know, James Carney, a star of the future. You know, he just sort of acts Chalamet off the screen, really. like,
1: well, I felt bad for Chalamet because he is a really good actor, it but it's playing across. to his weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. Like, it doesn't... None of it works for him, like...
2: And I found his English accent a little bit, you know. I've rounded my vowels a little bit. And, yeah. I uh, haven't quite done it. It is a bit, yeah. Rob Patterson is sort of basically in, like, a Monty Python movie, but I kind of enjoyed him because, as you uh, said in your intro, like, the movie's so sort of stodgy and, like, a bit dull, but okay. And when he turns up, it's, like, just giving a full-on comic performance. It's well, like, that's
1: one of the things where I, was, I wasn't really sure what they were going for with the film, yeah. because...
2: French, you know, uh, <laughs> Yeah. You've got a tiny cock. You've got me. a little tiny cock. i that's, got the big balls. i got the big French balls. You're a tiny Englishman cock, you know, compared to my giant
1: balls. That's, I mean, that is literally what his dialogue is like. And he is he is delivering it. Like, when I when I saw it at the film festival, like, everyone started laughing. It's very broad and comic. Yeah. But I don't, like, why is that the tone of the movie now? I thought this was all about, like, you know, catching venereal diseases and being, <laughs> being covered in mud and stuff.
2: That's the thing. It, like it goes back to your point about the language. Is like, it's not quite a sort of I don't know, like a brave heart, like early noughties Ridley Scott movie where you just have to sort of get behind as the goodies and baddies, and the underdogs will win. But at the same time, it's sort of, like, not historically accurate enough that that's enough of a take. It's kind of pitched weirdly in the middle. But if you look at this thing too much with the veil of history, it's like, why are these fucking children murdering each other over, like, bits of land in different countries? It's just mad. Like, the medieval history is just, like, so stupid. And, like, it wasn't uncivilized time. It was the Dark Ages, you know? Like, why did they go to France and take uh, this bit of land? It's like, all these people died nothing was really achieved yeah there's this weird we thing about the there's this
1: kind of thing about how he doesn't want to go to war and that's portrayed as him being really progressive and you know good but then it's also incredibly heroic of him to actually go to war and then he kind of like that's when he's made you know his image is made as a king and then he kind of finds out he was like tricked into it or something and it's like you can't make an anti-war version of this film it just makes no sense yeah you're just going against your own material for no reason it's really odd um yeah weird film
2: weird film uh, it's just such a netflix movie you know
1: yeah just one of those like why was this made type films yeah i don't know it's like every single pretty much every actor who turns up in the movie is is famous so it, that that has its own pleasures it's like oh it's that guy
2: yeah i want to see i want them to remake it with different casting keep mendelssohn keep james carney uh, bring back the Shakespeare text. Uh, make it yeah. eight hours long. But just go just go yeah. Just, just, watch the Crown. just go watch the Hollow Crown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: the Hollow Crown was the Hollow Crown was good. Just go go watch that and get the you know, Shakespeare language, which is ace. And and, and like just produces much more interesting characters. Like yeah. Henry the <laughs> Fourth is a really good character in that Shakespeare play. Like, you know, just like a very interesting man. And in this movie he's kind of not at all because they didn't use the material that was there for them to use yeah, for some yeah. reason. So, yeah, meh.
2: One to... Well, not meh, it's just on your Netflix
1: account. It's on your Netflix, so, just yeah. don't click on it when it don't, pops don't up, don't when they're advertising it. it. Don't click on it. Don't click on it. Don't do it.
3: My favourite film stars is Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to
1: be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. All right, friends, that's going to be it for this episode of Film Chat, the 201th episode yes um
2: join us next week the irishman we're gonna watch the irishman
1: we're gonna watch the irishman the combined seven hours of film viewing between us
2: yeah it's gonna be amazing he's he's well actually will it
1: will it be amazing i'm i'm curious i mean it's gotten really good reviews Um, and maybe maybe it'll be good
2: of a man who hasn't seen dr strange
1: (laughs) well that's true i think the review will just be is it cinema is this a cinema or not Is it cinema that's gonna be the big question yeah, I don't know. I'm a bit sus suspect about anything which seems like it's trying to revisit past glories and like mm. you know, Scorsese is directing it. De Niro's in it. It's a gangster film. Al Pacino's in it. Whatever. I don't know. Yeah, but maybe it will just actually be really good. Well, we'll have to watch and find out. Okay. Uh, anything else on the, on the plate? On the plate for for the uh, eating. Ooh. No. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't know. I don't know what's out. It's, it's it's the kind of weird transitional period, right? Where like the blockbusters have dried up, but no, the sort of uh, awards campaign movies haven't haven't quite got haven't going. Geared up yet. Well, it's time
1: for us to catch up on Shaun the Sheep Farm again, which we yes, didn't go see. And
2: Terminator Dark Fate. Let's we'll see those movies. Gotta see
1: Terminator <laughs> Dark Fate. I don't know how I missed it. I don't know that either. is my Dark Fate. Watch that film. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
0: In the novel, The Shining, uh, Jack Torrance is a difficult character, but he's fundamentally a, a sympathetic character. And I always visualized him as a piece of metal that's bent first one way and the other by these malignant spirits who basically want his son, because his son is a psychically powerful person. So I saw these all as warm characters, characters that were being threatened by forces from without from ghosts, from real supernatural creatures. And the film is extremely cold. Stanley Kubrick saw The Haunting as coming from Jack Torrance, from the Jack Nicholson character, whereas I always saw it from outside. So we had a fundamental difference of opinion about it. I always thought that the real difference between my take on it and Stanley Kubrick's take on it was this. In my novel, The Hotel Burns, In Kubrick's movie, The Hotel Freezes, it's the difference between warmth and cold.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more